We're going to stay in 2 Kings today. Going to continue going through the life of Joash, who just became the king last week. And remember, he was the seven-year-old who was hidden from the time he was one till the time he was seven from the queen of Israel, who self-appointed herself that, and who was not of the lineage of David, so an illegitimate monarch. And Joash was, was hidden from the time he was one year old till the time he was seven. I still think about that and go, how did they do that? How did they pull that off? But they did. And we start now today in 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12 starts out like this. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because, and I have this next word, I've, I've practiced saying it at home and I'll probably goof it up again. I think I did last week. Because, anyway, he did right in the days of, of the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Now, Jehoiada was the guy who, after he was, when he was seven, gathered all the people together, we saw this last week, and anointed him king, and they killed Athaliah, who was this, this queen who, was, who put herself on the throne. But then it goes on in verse 3. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, and the people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Now, the first thing I want to make sure we are reminded of is that we're back in the kingdom of Judah right now. And that's one thing we have to pay a little bit of attention to as we go in the kings. Most of the time it's talking about the kingdom of Israel. But when we flop over to Judah, we need to make sure that we know where we're at. And it's going to really get confusing for you later today because we're going to have a king of Israel called Joash. Okay? So we got the same name for kings for each of the kingdoms, but they rule at different times. But it's clear to anybody that a seven-year-old is not fit to rule a nation. But Joash had an able counselor who was able to instruct him wisely in following the Lord. And we're going to see that. Now, Joash didn't follow the Lord perfectly. For some reasons, the high places were not taken away. So the people continued to make sacrifices and offerings on the high places. Now we know from this brief introduction of Joash that his mother was from Beersheba, which was the city in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he was a southerner, you know, from you know, he was a he was a, from the kingdom of Judah. 
We also see that his reign lasted 40 years. Now, that might sound like a long time to reign. But remember, he came to the throne when he was seven. So he was 47 when he died, which isn't all that long or all that old. From 2 Kings 2.12, verse 20, and we're jumping forward a little bit, we find out his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes to Selah. And Amaziah his son reigned in his place. So he reigned for 40 years until he was assassinated. And we're going to find out a little bit more of what was the reasons for that assassination. We have a little bit of insight on that. But we won't get there quite yet. I don't know exactly how far we're going to get today, but we've got enough to go for a ways. Now in verse 3, it says, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. So what were the high places that were not taken away? What's that? Baal worship. Not Baal worship, um, but it was worship. They were very simply high places were elevated pieces of ground where were dedicated originally to idol worship. It didn't have to be idol worship. You could worship anything there. And they probably did worship Baal in some times on the high places. But um, the shrines often included an altar and a sacred object such as a stone pillar or a wooden pole in various shapes that were identified with the object of worship. And it seems like that high places were set up in a spot that had been artificially elevated. Now Jerusalem was in a high place because it was on the top of a hill. So the temple was on a high place. Everything you go up to the temple. And God would name only one place where a temple, where, where a sacrifice was authorized. And that was the temple in Jerusalem. That was the place that it was authorized to happen, period. And this was also, by the way, where Abraham slaughtered or uh, sacrificed the sheep when he had Isaac up on the hill. That's the place where the temple is. And God commanded that all other high places were to be destroyed, but he didn't destroy them. Now, they could have been making sacrifices to Yahweh or to God in those high places, but that didn't make them right. That didn't make it what they were supposed to do. They were not supposed to be doing altar or uh, sacrifices at high places. The high places were to be destroyed, but Joash did not do that. Now from 2 Chronicles 24, we get more detail on the reign of Joash. Verses 1 to 3 of 2 Chronicles 24 says this, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zilba of Beersheba. Okay, that's pretty much the same thing we just read. It goes on. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiakim. 
I did it again. I got to slow down when I get to this word. Jehoiada, the priest. And, Je and Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. So who was controlling the king? It was Jehoiada, right? The key phrase in this verse is, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada. Not all the days of his life. While Jehoiada was very good for Joash in the nation, he was older, obviously, when he promoted, when he got Joash to be the king. We don't know how old. And while he was alive, he accomplished quite a few things. And we can go back now to 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 4 to 16. We have a summary of the major items that Joash accomplished during his reign. It said, And Joash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring to the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. So he's repairing the temple. But then in verse 6, but by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests had made no repairs to the house. Sounds like a government project. Okay? Now, we don't know when he started this. He started to reign when he was seven. Give him three years to set this up. Maybe it was, he was ten. And 13 years later, possibly, we don't know. It's a lot, a, a while later. Nothing had been done. Verse 7, it says, Therefore King Joe summoned Jehoiada, the priests, and the other priests, and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Good question. Now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. So with the influence of Jehoiada, Joash set as a priority repairing the temple of Solomon. It is said that those in the nation had let the temple get into the state of needing repair. And it's sad that they let it get that way. Why was that even an issue? But over the years, it appears that the value of the temple in the eyes of the people had waned. Possibly even become commonplace. If you remember back to the day when the temple was dedicated to the Lord in, in 1 Kings 8, at the end of the temple dedication and after the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple, we read this in 1 Kings 8. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
And then we read in verse 65, um, Solomon held the feast at that time, and all Israel gathered with him a great assembly before the Lord our God seven days. So he had a seven-day feast when they were opening the house of the Lord, after they brought the Ark of the Covenant into it. And on the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. So, I mean, this was at a seven-day celebration. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Everyone was excited. They were joyful, glad of heart. This incredible temple had now been dedicated. And the glory of God was there. Now, we fast forward about 140 years. So think of it, 1880, okay? The temple was done. And now we have the state that the temple was in need of repair. You know, you're going to have to do some upkeep, but for whatever reason, it hadn't been done as it should have been done. But then, for, you know, when you think about the zeal of the people when the temple was dedicated, what we see here in 2 Kings 12, and we can read the same story in 2 Chronicles 17, the zeal of those in charge of keeping the temple had waned. Oh. It's been there 140 years. I don't, I don't want to fiddle with it today. The procrastinators were out in force. So what does Joash do? The first thing he does in verse 4 to 5 is he orders money to be used for the needed repairs. Use this money for the repairs. And the second thing he finds out that the repairs had not been made and it wasn't like adequate time and adequate money hadn't been gotten or hadn't been allowed. So he takes the collection of the funds out of the hands of the priests because the priests were collecting the funds. And he's saying, eh, not your job anymore, guys. Starting in verse 8, we see what he does next. And it says, Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chests, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. So they're paying the people that are working. Oh, what a novel concept, right? And they paid it out to the carpenters and to the builders who worked on the house of the Lord and to the masons and to the stone cutters as well to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. Okay, so that's what they did because of Joash. Now there's this collection box 
created for the purpose of collecting the funds and then the funds were distributed to all the carpenters and the builders and everybody who was working on the temple restoration. A guy named G.H. Jones had a, has a commentary on First and Second Kings and he wrote that until this time the temple expenses were met by the royal treasury. But Joash has transformed this obligation to the private sector. As people donated money, then it was used. So nothing came out of the royal treasury to repair the temple. Before that time, it was all a, 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 a royal responsibility. Now the question comes to mind is why had nothing been done given all the time that had transpired? Now we go back to Second Chronicles. We're going to be flopping back and forth between Second Chronicles and Second Kings. Second Chronicles provides some additional detail starting in verse 4. It says, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not, you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? Then we have something pretty interesting in verse 7. For the sons of Athaliah, now remember who she was? She was the person who made herself queen or king, the monarch, who Jehoiada had, had killed and put Joash on the throne. For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. Okay? So... This is a little bit of the background of what was going on. So one reason, besides the 140 years of wear, Matthew Henry wrote this. It seems the temple had gone out of repair. Though Solomon build, built it very strong of the best materials and in the best manner, yet in time it went to decay and there were breaches found in it. And he gets this from Second Chronicles. In the roofs or walls or floors, the ceiling or wainscoting or windows or the partitions of the courts, even the temples themselves are the worst for wearing. Yet it was not only the teeth of time that made these breaches, but the sons of Athaliah had broken up the house of God and out of enmity to the service of the temple had damaged the buildings of it. So Athaliah had her hand in that mess, or her sons had her hands in that. And how the sons of Athaliah had gotten away with that treatment, we don't know, but they did. 
no one was able to oppose them or stand in their way or stop them from doing it. And I got thinking about that. And it reminded me of how many so, how so, how many, this is coming out wrong, how so many false teachers get away with their verbal destruction of the gospel today. Now we understand that they will have a day of reckoning with the Lord in the day of judgment, just like the sons of Athaliah will. But they get away today with with destroying the gospel. And I'm not just speaking about the false teachers who are the extreme. We can get the extremes out there because there's lots and they make you want to throw up. But there are countless churches that have discounted or redefined the gospel to try to make it more appealing to the masses. As one example, this week I went out. I I had an email from a friend of mine who said they were going to go do a Bible study at this local church. It's in Nampa. And so I went out and just checked out their website. And this is what I found. And this would not be considered an, an extreme church. This is what's in their website. Our vision. As people who have experienced refuge in God, we strive to be a place where broken and hurting people can find a safe place for healing, experience God's transformative power, and respond to the invitation to partner with Him in a loving world. We are a place of refuge, they say. And this is still, this is right from their website. Safety is hard to come by these days. Tensions are high. Mental and emotional health are under siege like never before. Everyone says they have the answer, and that's in quotes. And yet so many are left feeling exhausted and directionless. We've all contributed to it, churches included. At, then they name their church, We've experienced all of the above, and while it hasn't always been comfortable, God has seen us through it all. That's why we want to be a place where everyone can belong, feel safe, and search for answers. And that's their place of refuge. The next thing they have is they're a place of transformation. And they say this, Over the years at our church, We have seen the broken and hurting, including ourselves, become whole again through the life-changing grace and power of Jesus. We believe that God loves each one of us, and when we place our trust solely in Him, He heals us and makes us new. And then they say, a place of partnership. This is their third bullet point. Because they call themselves a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership. It says, this is the exciting part with an exclamation point. We are, As we are being transformed, we're given the opportunity to be a part of something that truly matters, partnering with Jesus and sharing his message of love in our neighborhoods, serving those at the margins in our community, and standing up for justice. What's missing? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel, it's not there. You could take that vision 
and their place of refuge, transformation, and partnership, man, put it anywhere. Why did Jesus come? Did he come so we can find a safe place of healing and experience God's transformative power? Luke 19.10 says this, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Ephesians 2.1-6 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then we have John 5, 24, where Jesus said again, Truly, Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's quite a bit different than what we read in their, in their website. We do, not, we do not exist as a church to provide a place of refuge or a place of partnership. Those things may come about, But we exist to provide light to a world that is spiritually dead. And the life provided by Jesus Christ will take us from the path of condemnation to the path of life. And the result of that life is that we will be raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if we lose track of that, don't even bother coming. It's Ephesians 2, 1 to 6. It's easy to get off track. And they start using these words that sound so nice and flowery. But we must be about proclaiming the truth of the, truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ as our sole purpose. And when we become believers... A lot of things follow. They're talking about all the stuff without, without bringing to life. And this is just one example. I could have found lots of examples. And they're all here in the Treasure Valley. Okay, that was a little rabbit trail. We're going to go back. <laughs> If I didn't go on a couple of them, you wouldn't think it was me. Back to 2 Kings 12, verse 13. But there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought to the house of the Lord. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not, this is interesting, and they did not ask for an accounting from the men because uh, in, into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out the workmen for they dealt honestly. 
Didn't need lawyers. Isn't that nice? If, if we had people that were honest, how many lawyer contracts would we not need? A lot. That just shows you that the, the sinfulness of man. We've got to have those because someone will take advantage of it. But here, they were dealt with, they were dealing honestly. They were working for the Lord, and they were going to be honest and forthright. Now, the text also tells us that no, further, no funds were available for these utensils until the repairs were made. Now, 2 Chronicles 24.14 gives us details once the repairs were completed regarding the utensils. And here we read in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 24, And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king in Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, for both the service and for the burnt offerings and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Joash. No, all the days of Jehoiada. Okay? Because Jehoiada was the person who was pushing this. And we're going to find that when Joash dies, things change. Not in a good way. The next thing we see is Joash, Joash appeases Syria in 2 Kings 12, 17, and 18. And it says, At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, now he's been a pain in the, in the sight of Israel for a long time, fought, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Joash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent those to Hazael, the king of Syria, and Hazael went away from Jerusalem. He bite him off. Syria continues to be a pain to both Israel and Judah. And rather than seeking counsel from the Lord, he should have gone to Jehoiada and said, what do I do? Or go to Elisha, who is still alive, even though Elisha was more of a northern kingdom prophet. Sought a prophet of God and said, what should I do? He just complies to the demands of Hazael, which shows he is not relying on the Lord. And he also sees Syria as militarily superior. Now these verses seem like a pretty radical departure from the prior section when Joash was focused on repairing the temple. Well, what happened? Matthew Henry stated this. His wealth and honor became an easy prey to his neighbors. Hazael, when he had chastised Israel, threatened Judah and Jerusalem, likewise took Gath, a strong city, and thence intended to march with his force against Jerusalem. Joash had neither the spirit nor strength to make head against him, but gave him all the hallowed things and all the gold that was found 
both in his national bank account and the treasuries of the temple to bribe him to march another way. If it were lawful to do this for the public safety, the better part of the gold of the temple than expose the temple itself. You know, if he had not forsaken God and forfeited God's protection, his affairs would not have been brought to this extremity. He might have forced Hazael to leave. But he diminished himself and he made himself very small. He lost the honor of a prince and a soldier in alienating or giving away all these dedicated things. Henry calls it alienating. Henry goes on to say he impoverished himself and his kingdom. And then he says he tempted, and we'll see that this happened, he tempted Hazael to come again when he could carry home so rich a booty without striking a stroke. And it had its effect for the next year the host of Syria came up against Jerusalem, destroyed the prince, and plundered the city. He got there, you know, Hezael went there and got all this stuff for, for free, basically. Hey, hey, well, if he gave us that, there's more. Let's go back a little later. Now, in Second Chronicles 15, we get more detail to what happened to Joash that brought about the state that was described here in Second Kings 1217. When his rule began, it began well. Remember, Baal worship was destroyed and the city was at rest. But it didn't stay that way. In 2 Chronicles 14:15, we read this. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days. Well, there's a problem coming, you can tell. And died. He was 130 years old at his death. So yeah, he was, he was up there. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God in his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them. Oh, we got a problem. He's listening to the princes. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. And then verse 20, it gets even worse. Then the Spirit of, the God, of God clothed Zechariah. The, the son of Jehoiada. Now this is not the Zechariah who wrote the book Zechariah. Okay? He comes later. But he's the son of, of Jehoiada. And he stood above the people and said to them. Now he's speaking the spirit of God clothed Zechariah and he's telling them. Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him. And by the command of the king, Joash, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. 
Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zachariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And he, as when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. We don't read that in 2 Kings, but we see it in 2 Chronicles. <clears throat> Reading this, we see that Joash was readily influenced by these princes of Judah. And once Jehoiada was gone from the scene, they refused to see the good that he had done, and they were went bent on serving the Asherim and the idols. Now, a quick note, what are the Asherim? There's a picture in your notes, and you have one up here. Uh, this picture is of a four-tiered cult stand that is thought to represent, and this is important here, you get the idea, it's thought to represent Yahweh and Asherah, with each deity being depicted on alternating tiers. It's four tiers high. On tier two, which is dedicated to Asherah, is the image of a living tree, often thought to be how the Asherim as a cult symbol was expressed. And the Asherah, or the Asherim, was the name of a sensual Canaanite goddess, Asharti. And it's the feminine version of the Assyrian Ishtar. It was the symbol of the stem of the tree, deprived of its boughs and rudely shaped to an image and planted in the ground. So again we see the people trying to merge their worship of Jehovah or Yahweh with the false god. Well, we can, we can do them both. That's what they're trying to do with the Baals. And that's what they're trying to do here. Baal might have been out of the picture, but the Asherim came in. And one is just as bad as the other, as far as worshiping God. And that's what they did. Verse 23 of Second Chronicles 24 it says, At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. <coughs> Though the army of the Syrians had come with a few men, in other words, they didn't come with bunches. Though the army had come of the Syrians had come with a few men. The Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. Then we see in verse 25, when they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and killed him on his bed. So he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. That's the additional detail we get out of Second Chronicles. Second Kings 12 tell the same events but with a lot less detail. And after a nice beginning, serving the Lord through the help of Jehoiada, 
After his death, he allowed pagan worship, even to the point of killing Zechariah with stones because Zechariah opposed him. Robert Hubbard wrote about Joash. He said, once a promising, God-fearing young ruler, Joash died a disappointment. By bribing Hazael with temple treasures, he tarnished this once great, his, his once great achievement, the temple restoration. Why? We can only speculate. It could have been that he went along with the advice of Jehoiada, but was never fully on board. He was seven, eh, and never really bought into it. It looks like he was swayed by the princes after Jehoiada's death. Regardless of the reason, Joash was responsible for the decisions he made and culpable in the death of Zechariah. And culpable of passively letting the country again permit idol worship. He had a responsibility and he flunked. After this, we're going to close out the life of Elisha, I think. Yeah, we might not make it. We're going to get close. 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, we're back in the northern kingdom now. 2 Kings 12 was all the southern kingdom. Now we're back in the northern kingdom. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. And if I did my math right, Joash reigned for 40 years, Jehoahaz reigned for 17 years, and 17 years plus 23 is 40, so they both ended their reigns on the same year. They're real close to each other. Jehoahaz did what was evil, verse 2, in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hands of Hazael, king of Syria, into the hands of Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael. What, again, we see these, these sad, sad words given to a king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the reason Hazael was able to gain control on the nation of Israel was not because Israel didn't have any power. It was due to Israel's sin, not due to lack of might. Again, we see here, and we see it all the way through Scripture, really, the Old Testament. God used an ungodly nation to punish his people. He did that with Babylon. He did that all the time. But then we see something... <clears throat> In Jehoahaz's uh, reign, that's kind of interesting. He did evil that what was in the sight of the Lord. He followed the sins of Jeroboam. But he knew about God. Verse 4. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior. 
so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. So God did something for them. But then we see, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. So they didn't change their idea, their attitude. They didn't change and thank God for it. <coughs> for there was not <coughs> for there was not left Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. He doesn't have a very big army, guys. For the king of Israel had destroyed them and made them like dust at the threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did are written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Israel. And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash his son reigned in his place. Not the same Joash. Okay? This is Israel. The other one was Judah. Here we have an ungodly monarch seeking the favor of the Lord. He knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this knowledge kind of makes it more egregious that he would not follow him. He knew about it, but he wasn't following him. But even though he wasn't following him, he called out to the Lord, and what happened? The Lord listened to him. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. The Lord listened to this guy who wasn't following him. God knows and God listens. And I was thinking about that. You know, each one of us at one time, as it says in Colossians 2.13, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us here, not one of us excluded. We were all dead. But it says in Colossians 2.13 and 14, But God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When we were dead and called out to God, he heard our cry. That's pretty neat. God hears the cry of a spiritually dead person. He did what Jehoahaz, he listened. Now the circumstances are different here in 2 Kings, but God listens to those who are in sin, who, cry, who are dead, who cry out to him in saving faith. That's pretty neat. You can, just, you can just put your head on your pillow for your nap this afternoon, if you take an afternoon nap, or you can do it tonight. And, and, and just let that, let that bounce around in there. God listened to me when I was dead and made me alive. That's pretty, that's pretty special. Now just who the Savior that God sent here to help them, we don't know who it was. There are a lot of theories on who it could have been. And we don't need to go into all the theories because they're just theories. We don't know. We don't know. Regardless of who the human element one was, it was the honor of Israel that they were taking uh, under for the special protection of heaven. 
God was their defense. It wasn't the person, it wasn't the man or the few men. It was God who restored everything. He was their shield. And he's our shield. And sadly, we see, and typically, even though God brought them a Savior, the people did not depart from their sin. Why? Their heart was cold. All they wanted was to be relieved of their present condition. And they did not credit God with their protection. Now, you might have already gone there. We act the same way. When things are looking tense, lost, we turn to God. Only to forget about Him when the threat is behind us. Everyone here probably remembers 9-11. Right? 9-11. And do you remember what happened to church attendance? 9-12? From an article by Duke University, which is hardly a beacon of Christianity, it's not. Okay, I think it's a United Methodist uh, um, institution, which is horrid from a theological standpoint. But from an article, we read this. Quote, after the September 11th terror attacks... Many expected American houses of worship to be jammed with parishioners seeking refuge, community, and a place to grieve. And that spike in church attendance did, fact, in fact, occur. Briefly. But the attacks did not have a lasting effect on American religiosity. The jolt to church attendance following the tax lasted just a few weeks. People thought this type of crisis of natural significance would lead people to be more religious, and it did, but it was very short-lived. There is a blip in church attendance, and then it went back to normal. That's the quote from their article. And in America... About 30% today say that they attend church services once a week. 30%. And then of that 30%, what percent attends churches that really present the gospel? I don't know. Let's just give it a high number of 30%, which I think is grossly high. That leaves 9% overall. The majority of Americans do not know what the gospel really is. And they do not know the gospel. I, I have not seen, I have not checked the facts on this, but I'd be willing to bet you that more people watch the NFL than go to church. Because football is important. We could go on for a little bit because we haven't got to the conclusion of Elisha yet, but um, I think that's probably a good place to stop at this point in time. And next week, I, w- I couldn't decide if we were going to go back to Psalms to 120 or we'll go one more week probably in in Second Kings. We'll be in verse... Chapter 13, starting with verse 10.